Good morning. Good morning. It is good to be here. For those of you who might not know me, uh, my name is Jonathan. I am on the pastoral team here at Central. Well, as we begin, I want to ask you a question. When's the last time you told a story? When's the last time you, you've told someone a story? Now, if you're, if you're a parent here, it's probably pretty recently, right? right? You, you've probably, in fact, told the same story over and over and over and over again. You're probably quite sick of telling stories you'd actually rather not. But outside of sort of bedtime stories, when's the last time you told someone a story? I bet it's actually been fairly recently, right? We, we don't always think about it, but we actually tell stories quite a lot. Just think about the last time someone asked you how your day was or, or how your week has been, maybe even this morning, right? You probably responded with good, fine, busy, whatever, right? But, but hopefully the conversation doesn't end right there and actually you continue on. And most likely what's going to happen next is you're going to tell a story, you're going to tell about, you know, what your day was like or what your week was like, some of the things that happened, how, how events transpired, how it made you feel, how you went through it, how you reacted to what happened. We tell each other stories actually quite a lot. A lot of how we communicate with one another is simply through storytelling. And so it's not terribly surprising that this is one of the, the, the primary ways that we actually connect with one another. Right? It's how we get beyond just facts. Right? It, it, whenever you're telling someone about your day, you're probably not telling them a, a minute by minute what happened. You're going to tell them a story. It, it puts in you know, beyond just what happened, but, but it puts in the heart and the emotion of what goes on. Right? Stories can teach us things uh, beyond just a description. Right? It's why Hollywood makes so much money. <laughs> Right? Because they're good storytellers, or at least they're supposed to be good storytellers. You can decide that on your own. But essentially, that's the idea. We actually really like stories because that's how we connect to one another. It's how we, we actually go beyond just a, a, a reporting of the news. We want to hear story. And so it's not particularly surprising then that that's how God speaks to us. Right? In fact, this book we have, the Bible, is about 40% just story. It's narrative, which is actually quite a lot. If you think about everything the Bible contains, all of the, all of the laws, all of the you know, commandments, the prophecies, the teaching, the letters, all the poetry, and yet it's still a vast majority here, story. Right? Because that's how we connect to what is going on. God tells us a story. Now, if you grew up in the church, you've probably heard lots of Bible stories over the years, right? You've heard the story of Noah and the ark, David and Goliath, and you've heard Daniel and the lion's den, and that's often how we look at the Bible, right? As this sort of collection, you know, the hits of what God has done. Here's, here's the highlight reel, and it's all just this kind of, you know, good scene after good scene after good scene, and oh, that's very interesting. It teaches us something. And certainly that is true, but that's not really how we're intended to read the Bible. In fact, the Bible has one storyline, it has one grand story that it is telling us through all of these little ones. 
And so this morning, what we want to do and what we're trying to do in this sermon series is actually to walk through this big story of the Bible. What does God have to say to us? How has he acted through the history of humankind and what is he showing us through it? And so this morning, we're, we're going to continue on in that series, looking at this, this grand story that God is telling. And I want us to be able to connect to what God is saying be able to connect to what God has been doing throughout history. And so last Sunday we began, we began this grand story. We looked at creation, God starting very literally at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God creates them and he forms them and he fashions earth into being. And then he places into this garden, Adam and Eve these original two people, and he places them in there, and he doesn't just set them, he actually gives them a purpose, right? We looked at this last week. God actually gave Adam and Eve a charge, go create culture, spread the image of God across the world as they are made in God's image, so continue, multiply, and spread his image and his glory around the world. They were called create, and they were called to enjoy. Enjoy all that God had made. They were placed in the Garden of Eden, this paradise that God made. It was perfect and pure as God himself is perfect and pure. But all of you know it doesn't stay that way, right? No, in fact, we, we read that description in the Bible and we look at our world and we say, you know, it doesn't quite look like that. We look around and we see a lot of, you know, sin and sickness and suffering. We see crime and hatred and violence and all manner of other chaos and disruption in our world. And we look at that description of what God made and what he called very good and we say, what happened? Because that's not what I see anymore. I don't see that world, so, so what happened? And this week, really, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at what we call the, the fall. So if you have a Bible with you, I'll invite you to open to Genesis chapter 3, all the way on the left, all right? Third chapter in our Bibles. And we're going to look at what is called the, the curse of sin. And so we're going to look at this curse, and I want us to understand, you know, why this is here, because it's going to help us actually understand what is happening next. And really, that's what I want us to see. I want us to see the storyline of the Bible. How does this play out? And I want us to realize the need then that we have. So that's where we're going to go. Let's look at this curse. So if we were to pick up the storyline from last time, God creates Adam and Eve, places them in this garden, this paradise, and they are enjoying what God has made, right? They get to, they get to actually walk and talk with God. They have this open, you know, beautiful relationship with God, and they can actually ask him anything. Imagine being able to do that. Actually ask God anything that you have, any question you have, and you can just sit and talk with him. And God places Adam and Eve there, and they have this beautiful marriage relationship, Right? This is unlike any marriage we have ever known. This was a marriage where they had never had a fight. Now, I know sometimes people say, oh, we, we never fight. And all they really mean is we've been repressing everything, right? We've just been pushing it down. No, 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 no. That's not what we're talking about. We're actually talking about a marriage in which they've never had a reason to fight. 
There's never been a harsh word. There has never been a disappointment or an unmet expectation where their communication hasn't ever broken down, where there's never been a harsh word. They actually got to enjoy what God had made in marriage, uninterrupted and unhindered. And into this creation, God gave them one rule. Enjoy all that has been made. But of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam, do not eat of its fruit. And so there was one rule here, and so there was one way in which they could be tempted. And in in chapter 3, as it begins, a snake comes. Right? Later on, we, we know this is Satan himself. Satan enters the picture and he comes to Eve with a question. Did God really say you couldn't eat of any of this fruit? And Eve responds, well, well, what are you talking about? Of course God said we, we could eat of all of the fruit. It's just the one tree we should stay away from lest we die. And for the very first time, Eve now heard a lie. Satan responded, and he said, you're not going to die. In fact, you will be made like God, more even than he wants you to be. And for the very first time, Eve had to now make a choice. Was she going to obey God? Was she going to believe what God had told her? Or would she try it her own way? We know what happens She takes the fruit, she passes it to Adam who had been sitting there quite silently this whole time and they both eat of the fruit and immediately something happens. They feel something they've never felt before, shame. Suddenly both of them are ashamed because they realize they are naked, they are exposed before God and they are now terrified. They are terrified because they have just disobeyed a holy, almighty God who created them, and they are afraid of what is going to happen. Terrified, they run around, they try and cover themselves, they try and hide from God. And God comes into the picture. He comes in and he says, Adam, where are you? I often imagine this is very much like a toddler trying to hide himself by covering a pillow over his head and thinking they're hidden, right? God is not confused as to where Adam and Eve actually are. He says, where are you? And then he asks, why did you eat the fruit? Why did you eat that fruit? And immediately, you know what happens? That perfect relationship breaks down. Adam immediately responds, it was, it was that woman that you gave me, God. Right? Adam's sin is already coming back. He blames everyone and everything except himself. It was the woman that God gave him. Eve does the same. She blames the serpent. Sin had entered the world. What was perfect is now imperfect. What was pure is now defiled. What is innocent now knows evil. See, God told them there was going to be consequences to that action. In verse 14, we pick up the story and we see what happens. So if you have a Bible now, let me invite you to follow along with me. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, 
Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Jumping down to verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Sin comes with a heavy curse. And so before we're going to continue on in this story, I want us just to pause and understand what exactly is going on here. What, what is God telling them about what is going to come forward because God really here is setting the stage for what's about to happen next right the curse is broken down kind of into three parts the curse to the serpent to Eve and to Adam and so God says to the serpent you are cursed because you brought sin into this world and he and he tells the serpent Satan that there will be enmity now animosity, there will be hatred between you and the people of God. But then comes probably one promise we are somewhat familiar with. God makes this promise that he is going to give an offspring who will crush the head of Satan, though he will bruise his heel. It's the promise that God actually is not done with humanity. It's the promise that one day he is going to deal with the root of evil, that it will come to pass. That despite everything else that is going to happen, God has a promise for us. This isn't the end. But sin infects everything. And so to Eve, God says that childbearing will now come with pain. I don't think we need to even prove this one. It seems pretty obvious. Yeah, it comes with pain, but I I think there's more intended here than just the physical. Yes, physically it's going to be painful, but I think he's saying that childbearing itself will be a painful process. Children will die both inside and out of the womb. We're going to watch the pain of having children wander away, rebel, You're going to have to see them leave the home sometimes in very poor ways. Bringing children into the world will be a painful process. In fact, it is exactly what God had just called Adam and Eve to do, to multiply and fill the earth. Now that very mandate, because of sin, would be a painful process. 
God says the relationship between Eve and her husband would now be problematic. We've already seen them blaming each other moments after sin entered the world. The curse of sin we see in the breakdown of marriages and relationships all the time. To Adam, God says, because you have sinned, the very ground itself is going to be cursed. God called Adam to, to work the garden, to fill it, to bring forth fruit. And now God says, that very labor is going to come with toil and futility. God says, you're going to be sweating and you are going to be working. And yet sometimes all you will get back are thorns and thistles. I think every one of us knows the pain of spending an entire day at work, seemingly banging our heads against the wall and getting nothing done. It's a reminder of the curse that we live in a fallen world. Finally, God says to Adam, just as you were taken out of the ground, you will be returned to it. In fact, death was now going to come. The result of their sin, the curse, was that they are going to die. But in fact, things, I'm going to say, get worse. Verse 23 and 24. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. They are taken out of God's presence. This garden of Eden was was not a paradise simply because nothing was wrong. It was a paradise because there they dwelt with God Almighty at peace. That was taken away. In fact, the verse, uh, verse 24 tells us that God drives them out. They are thrown out of this garden and God bars the way. He places an angel to stand guard with a flaming sword. They could not come back. Sin had separated, had broken the relationship between God and man. See, the truth is that is the curse. All the rest are, are reminders. They are, they are side effects of the curse that we are cut off from God, that there is a divine punishment against our sin. And so we learn right from the opening pages of Scripture of a God who is holy, who is pure, who is just, who is righteous, and we learn of ourselves we are sinful, fallen and rebels against him. See, this is the opening scene of the Bible. It starts off in this beautifully glorious manner and yet shortly we are left in despair and in sin. But here's the interesting thing. The story didn't end. Right, in one sense we almost could end right now, couldn't we? We could almost end right now, and because we know where the story goes, we know it's going towards redemption and restoration. We know that, so why don't we just stop here and we'll skip over to Jesus? Why do we have all of the rest of this? Well, I think it's there for a reason. The story is there on purpose. So let's keep going. What happens next? What happens next in the story of fallen man? Well, in many ways, it, it goes on exactly how you might think it now will go on. To a family that has now had an infection of sin, what we find is that the sin continues. Adam and Eve, they have children. They have two sons, Cain and Abel. And before chapter 4 is ended, Cain has killed his brother Abel. 
Yet they also are sinful, and childbearing comes now with pain. In fact, as we continue on in the story, we find instead of sin becoming you know, less and less, actually it becomes more and more where Cain kills his brother Abel and actually feels remorse for that, we continue on in the line and we come across a man named Lamech who has no remorse whatsoever for killing a man who looked at him wrong. In fact, that's what we see. We see the escalation of what happens in this world of sin until finally God gets to the point and he says, all right, that's enough. We're pushing the reset button. In fact, the world had become not filled with the glory of God, it had become filled with sin and violence. And so God comes to a man named Noah. And he says, Noah, I want you to build a boat, real big boat. Build it right here on dry land and fill it with a whole bunch of animals. And so Noah does this, even though it makes no sense and people mock him continually. He builds this giant boat and God brings a flood and wipes out everyone on earth. Have you ever wondered? You know, maybe the problem with with humanity, maybe the problem is just that, you know, we live in such a a wicked society, right? It's our culture, that's the problem. We have all these rules and laws, they need to be changed. If we are ever to have, you know, peace on earth, what we need to do is we gotta reform society, we gotta start again. So essentially, this is what God does. He takes the most righteous man on earth and he hits reset, and now Noah is going to be able to to bring forward this peace. In fact, Genesis chapter nine, verse one, we find a very familiar command. God reestablishes his covenant with him, and it says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's the same thing God said to Adam and Eve. And so now here is Noah without any outside influence, no peer pressure to, to make him fall, and he walks out of the ark, and he plants a garden. He plants a vineyard. And for just this brief moment, we we see this hope. Maybe, maybe he is going to restart. Maybe it will turn out all right. But what does he do? He makes wine and gets drunk. (laughs) And his sons find him naked in bed and passed out. One of his sons mocks him for it. And Noah wakes up the next day and he curses his son. They fell quickly. But nonetheless, the story continues. In fact, as we continue on, we see the lines and the nations that come from Noah and his family, and eventually we see them continually walking away from God to the point where they decide, you know what, maybe we can work our way back up to God, and they decide, let's build a tower. Let's build ourselves a utopia to live in, and this will be perfect. And and God comes, and he looks down at their little tower, and he confuses their languages and spreads them across the earth. In fact, no, they, they could not work their way back to God. And the story continues until we come to a man by the name of Abram. And here now God is going to do something himself. He is going to take someone and he is going to use them, choose them out of all the peoples and he is going to bless him. 
And so he calls Abram, Genesis 17. He says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Here, God was going to make a new agreement, a new covenant with humanity by which he would destroy sin. And he calls Abram. Did you hear it? Walk before me. Multiply. These are the echoes of what God did in the Garden of Eden. And yet he calls Abram, later Abraham, be blameless before me. Now as a church, we, we actually walked through the story of Abraham not too long ago. And so you might remember how it turns out. Abraham was far from blameless. Far from being a blessing to the other nations. In fact, he lied to them sold his wife into a harem, not once, but twice. In fact, doesn't even trust that God could multiply his family, so he takes on another wife, and then when that son grows up, he basically abandons him. No, in fact, Abraham was deeply flawed. And even as we follow that family forward, we see that his son is no better. Isaac is a liar just like his dad. His grandson, Jacob, is a liar and a cheat who steals his brother's birthright, who claims a blessing that isn't his to claim. In fact, his sons are even worse again. They're violent, murderous men who sell off their brother into slavery. Now, the truth is that none of these people lived up. And in fact, the same pattern that we saw originally of sin escalating and getting worse and worse, we see now in this very family that God had chosen. In fact, the family continues and the nation of Israel comes from them. They grow, they multiply, they're a massive nation and then are enslaved in Egypt, horribly treated and suffering until God once again comes and he says, I will bring them out. I will bring them out of this land. And in fact, I will call them to be a people for my own name. And so God brings them out of the land of Egypt and he makes a covenant with them. In fact, he makes a new covenant in which they are to be a holy nation. They are to be a kingdom of priests. And you might think, well, okay, here, here we again, we get to start again, and maybe things will be better. God promises them a land where he will dwell with them, where they will have peace. And yet, is that what happens? No. No, it doesn't. You might think God created Adam and Eve to create this culture and to spread the glory of God. Maybe all they needed was better direction. So God gives them laws. God gives them commandments. Here is how you are to set up your society. Here's how you are to function as a nation. Here's how you are to interact with others. Here, follow these laws. And yet, are they able? No. They fail again. In fact, they do not live up to what God calls them to do. When they eventually get into the land... When they actually start to take over the land, we find actually these same patterns repeating themselves. In fact, all throughout the book of Judges, we find this cycle 
The people rebel against God, and then God sends in oppressors. They cry out, God, would you save us? God saves them, and we repeat again and again and again and again. The cycle continues, and in fact, it gets worse and worse until finally they say, all right, enough of this. We don't want to keep doing this. We don't want to keep following after what God calls us. We want our own king. We want to look like all the other nations. What we need, we need a leader. Then we can do it. Then we're going to be able to follow everything. And so Saul comes into the picture. And sure, Saul starts off really good. He starts off looking like he actually knows what he's doing, but very quickly it takes a sharp left turn and down when he is far more interested in himself than in others. Sure, you say, okay, but what they needed was a good leader. What they needed was someone who could actually help them through these things. And so God raises up David. Now here is a leader, a man of faith, a man after God's own heart, a man of courage. Surely he will be the one to be able to lead them. In fact, God makes another covenant with him. 2 Samuel chapter 7 says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Once again, we have God coming and making this promise, making this agreement, this covenant with humanity, and yet, once again, it's the human side that fails again. David falls into lust, commits adultery with Bathsheba, murders her husband, He ended up a man of pride who wanted to take a census even though God told him not to and God judges him for his sin. In fact, the line of kings that followed did not do better. Solomon, his son, sure, yes, he builds the temple and again looks like it's going well, right? He is leading the people to worship God. He prays for wisdom above all else. And yet at the end of his life, he's married to hundreds and hundreds of women who draw him away and he cares more for his wealth. He too falls. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, he does even worse. He barely gets on the throne and he causes a civil war to break apart this nation. This one nation that was supposed to be God's own possession, restoring this this peace with God is now so broken, so fractured that a civil war breaks out and the north in Israel and the south in Judah never again are whole. Even the brightest spots in all the kings that follow along in this line do not live up. None of them end this obsession that Israel had with idolatry. King Joash, who would repair the temple years later, at the end of his life, ends up ignoring prophets and killing them. King Uzziah sought to follow after God, yet grew so prideful in it that God struck him with leprosy. King Hezekiah, though he prayed for God's deliverance and trusted in him against the Assyrians, ended up trusting in his own wealth and his riches to the end of his life. God would send prophet after prophet after prophet to warn his people, turn back, your sin is consuming you, there is a judgment against your sin, end the violence, end the oppression of the poor, turn back to me. But they would hear none of it. 
God allows Israel to be destroyed by Assyria and wipes them off the map. Judah does a little better, but is eventually led off by Babylon into captivity for 70 years. And even when they do return to the land, they don't find an Eden waiting for them. They find a desolate land. In fact, this is the story of sinful, fallen man. It's a story of of a continual cycle of God being faithful, God being patient with us, God giving us another chance, and yet we don't measure up. You can't say God wasn't patient. He spent hundreds of years. There are thousands, if not millions, of people who went under that time. And yet not one of them ever met God's standard. All of them fell in sin. All of them were fallen. It's the pattern of sinful rebellion against God. It's the consequences of sin being played out. It's life outside the Garden of Eden. So what do we do with this story? What do we do with this story? Because it's not particularly hopeful at this moment. In fact, it's the story of the Old Testament. If you've been following along, there it is. There's a whole history of what God has done throughout the nation of Israel and in our Old Testament. Why did God give us this? Shouldn't we just skip ahead? Right? We know what's coming. Why are we talking about this? Well, I think part of the reason that God gives us this story is because we need to realize our deep need for him. We need to realize the need that dominates scripture from chapter three onwards is for us to deal with the sin in our lives. See, I think God shows us this problem again and again and again because we are so reticent to actually believe it. We don't want to believe it. We want to blame everything and everyone else. Just like Adam looking around, who can I blame? We blame our upbringing. We blame our parents. We blame the rules we learned. We blame our culture we live in. We blame the leader that we follow. All of those are responsible, but it's not me. The story of the Bible actually tells us no matter our upbringing, no matter our parents, no matter the leader we follow, Actually, the problem isn't out there. It's in here. We actually have a problem with sin. In Romans chapter 3, Paul will summarize it this way. He says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Sorry. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Is that not what we see around us? Lies and deceit, bitterness and cursing, ruin and misery, and if we're honest, it's what's in our life too. See, this isn't ultimately a story about another land, about a different people. 
It's a story about us. It's a story that actually begins to reflect and mirror back what we look like. The sin patterns that exist in our lives, the Bible begins to show them to us. God tells us this story so that we actually see that we fit in. It exposes our sinful pattern, our rebellious streaks, and it even exposes what it will cost. Because of their sin, Adam and Eve were removed from the intimate presence of God. They were told that the punishment for their sin is death, and not simply the physical death they experienced. It was the spiritual death of being uh, punished by an infinite God. See, the curse of sin isn't ultimately about sweat or pain. Yeah, those are reminders of the brokenness that our sin has caused. But the curse of sin is that one day God will judge us for our sins and all of us will be condemned. Every one of us are guilty. Not one of us has ever measured up. None of the people we talked about ever did. The sin of Adam has condemned the human race. Adam fell, Noah fell, Abraham fell, Moses fell, David fell. All have failed God's call. See, we have a desperate need of someone who can deal with our sin. We have a desperate need of being able to to deal with the wrath of God that hangs over us. The truth is we are helpless to save ourselves. The Bible says we are dead in our transgressions and our sins. Just like roadkill you pass along the highway. We are as dead and have as little chance of getting to God as that dead animal has of standing back up and walking across the road. God told us this story so we would finally recognize the need every single one of us has. We need a savior. We need a savior. We need someone to come who can deal with this in our lives. That is the great need that every single one of us has. And until we realize that, Until we come to the place where we say, yes, I have offended a holy God. I am unable to help myself. I stand condemned under him. We will never cry out, God have mercy on me, a sinner. We'll never understand the rest of the story. But I asked why God told us this story. Is it just to prove that, that, that we can't do it by ourselves? Is it just to say how helpless and foolish we are? No. No, in fact, God tells us this story because he wants to tell us about someone greater. Galatians chapter 3, Paul will ask, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until... Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. See, all throughout this story, we have been hearing these hints of an offspring who is yet coming. Of a son who would come and one day he would crush the head of the serpent. Who would one day fill the world, the earth, with the glory of God. 
who would be a blessing to all the nations, who would lead his people to know God, who would sit on the throne of David forever. That is who this story is all about. And until we recognize where we stand, we're never looking for a greater Noah or a greater Abraham or a greater Moses or a greater David that this story is pointing us to. That's where we're going. That's why God tells us this story. But this morning, we're going to pause here. We're going to pause here in, in the fall, in sin. Because before we can get to next week, we need to respond to this. Before we can go on and talk about redemption and restoration, we need to deal, we need to respond with the fact that all of us have fallen under sin. All of us have rebelled against what God has called us, has made us to do. So I want to end with the same way that the Old Testament ends. The very last prophet in the Old Testament is a man by the name of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist ends, or comes, sorry, with one message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, when we are actually faced with our sin, when we're actually faced with the reality of what this means, of our own helpless state, we have to come and repent. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from following after all those things God has called us not to do. Instead, seek to be faithful to him. Seek after God and trust in his patient mercy. See, all throughout, God was patient with his people. All throughout, God was merciful to his people. All throughout, he was pointing them to someone coming. So this morning as we close, let me invite the the worship team to make their way to the front. And as they do, I want to call us. Would, Would we spend time in repentance this morning? Would we spend time looking at our own lives and actually examining what we are called to do, where we have fallen short? Would we confess them before God? Would we actually turn to him for mercy, for patience with such sinners like us? But ultimately, would we look forward? The story is told because there is someone greater coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Lord, thank you that you do not leave us in our sin. You don't leave us in in our desperation, in our helpless, hopeless estate. But Father, you have worked in this world. Father, we confess we have sinned. We have fallen short of your glory. We have fallen short of what you have called us to do, what you have made and created for us. Lord, we have tried at times to justify ourselves, to save ourselves. Father, we are sorry. We confess we are unable to do it on our own. But Father, we come to you knowing that the story isn't over, that there is still one coming who will save us. 
Father, thank you for that. We pray these things in your name. Amen.